0: Baker, she, her, an education lecturer and children's fantasy literature researcher at University of East London. You're listening to Fantasy Book Swap, where a guest and I swap children's fantasy fiction, one classic and one contemporary, and we discuss them. Today I'm joined by Scott O'Brien, a reader
1: and a Dead Sea Scout alongside Steve Baker Hello, what have you been up to recently? Uh, Mostly just work and work and more work, including a lovely trip to Swindon. Where uh, I believe there's a Swindon Comic Con going to be happening in there Steam. Yeah. Uh, I was told by one of my um, team. Uh, we just held an event there, so it'd be a very different event, I'm sure. But... Yeah,
0: and there's a new bookshop that just opened there this weekend called Burt's Books, who oh, I right. follow
1: on Twitter. So oh, cool. That's, that's pretty cool. I'm back down there again this week, so maybe that's a, a destination. Yes,
0: most definitely. Support your local bookshop. Um, Not even your local bookshop, a (laughs) local (laughs) bookshop. Anyone's local bookshop. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So your choice was um, Ursula Le Guin's A Wizard of Earthsea. Can you summarise the plot
1: for Uh, us? I can. Um, So a coming of age story (coughs) for me. Um, A young boy, and I think we settle on Dooney. Part of a small rural community comes to understand he has magical powers um, with the help of his slightly witchy aunt. Um, interesting, we'll come back to that, I'm sure. Um, and he first expresses that potential in defending his village against the marauders who have come forward. And then news of that feat spreads, and one day this powerful, famous mage, uh, Ogeon, should we go for Ogeon? I think it's Ogeon, yes. Uh, who offers to take him <laughs> on as an apprentice and confers on him his true name uh, of Ged. Uh, and I'm sure we'll come back to names as well. Yeah. So Ogeon's o- sort of a, one of these nonic figures, so Grace's power seems to be not using his powers mm. uh, in that, uh, a bit like the witches in, in Pratchett. That, yeah. That's in like Brandy Weatherwax. You don't use the magic unless you have to use the magic and it's about the ordinary things and moving through things and understanding the world that is, is powerful. Uh, and as sort of teenage wizards seem to be in nearly every book, Ged is impatient, a bit horny, mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit sort of uh, that, that sort of teenage uh, archetype uh, and partly to impress a girl. He performs some magic. He doesn't understand and invites a shadowy monster into the world.
0: Yeah. He's um, what I, I really like about John is it, it, he reminds me very much of um, a kind of uh, like a sensei. He's more yeah. of a sensei than a wizard in some ways. Mm. Because it's all about kind of the balance and the, um, and doing, doing the right thing and knowing when it's the right time to act rather than like, you know, using your magic for anything. Um, I really like that. Sorry, please
1: carry no, that's on. that's fine. So, uh, forced to step in, mm. uh, prevent the spell reaching fruition, gets quite embarrassed about all of mm. that, um. And Ogeon's response to this is to offer uh, Ged the chance to go off to school and pick up his education there. Yeah. So to move away from this sort of uh, master-pupil relationship and go into a a more formal setting around that. And Ged takes that uh, offer up. Mm. Um, He's at school on the end of the road. He makes some friends, a guy called Vetch, uh, and also a rival, um, Jasper. Uh, And in an effort to shut Jasper up, one day Ged decides to try and summon a dead spirit And once again, some is a shadow monster. So, you know, repeats the same mistake. Mm. Uh, Again, that sort of uh, ego-driven sort of response. Uh, The archmage of the school then banishes the monster but dies in the process, Mm. Um, which I'm sure must be at least worthy of a detention. But, you know, it's not (laughs) something I ever quite managed at school. There we go. Um, So he's not expelled or excluded or whatever we're going to use. Continues his studies at school, graduates, and ends up as a sort of a... A defence against dragons in a small town. That's the job he picks up, if you like. Yeah. Off the back of that. Um, becomes a bit less arrogant. Maybe he's beginning to actually learn some lessons from being responsible for the death of his head teacher. Uh, but then he tries to save a baby, and in doing so, the shadows begin to come back. And he flees the town he's there to, to um, protect in order to save the people around him from the darkness that seems to mm. just be following him around. Um... Before he goes, he protects the town with a sort of a preemptive strike against the dragons he's meant to defend them against, and then he goes after the shadow monster. He decides to hunt down the person who's... Sh- or the, the thing that's trying to follow him. Uh, there's a magic sword at that point. He tries to get a hold of, because, of course, there's a magic sword. Um, but he's tricked into meeting... I've written here an evil stone, which he escapes by turning into a falcon. Yeah, so a slightly odd, odd thing. Yeah. That, that changing into birds thing. Now, I read and only later discovered about the authors and um, the Bulgariad and the yeah. uh, is it Malorian the, the yeah. fantasy books uh, before I knew about the uh, before I knew about all the child abuse allegations <laughs> and everything else around Ed, the Eddings yeah. um, Lee and, and David Eddings um, that transition into Burr, that transformation, that transfiguration seems to be something that is a, is a trope that's interesting in in this space and seems to go together with that idea of wizard bird mm. being able to get above things to take that broad view so interesting that that's come up again
0: it's also in um a sword the sword in the stone oh yeah of course, yeah, yeah. so uh, when uh arthur is, is learning about uh you know his duties and learning from merlin mm. he he also turns into a bird yeah. it must be something I like, i guess it's it must be there must be some kind of archetype of it
1: somewhere. Yeah. The power of flight. Yeah, all that stuff. Thing, yeah. yeah. That's interesting. <laughs> so, um, I guess at this point, Ged begins to realise that you can't do everything on your own. He flies back to see uh, Ogeon to seek help. Uh, Ogeon is the one who says, stop running. You mm. need to turn around and confront this and hunt the shadow monster down. And them then enlists the help of Vetch. And the two of them set off chasing the shadow um, which then itself appears quite scared of mm. the, in, in the situation that they're in. Uh, they finally corner the shadow, which turns out to be part of Ged, and he names it as being part of himself, which is a key transition mm. in, in the story. And then having Depe- defeated they head home, uh, and Ged has sort of, by that point, fixed the issue he created and discovered more about himself in the process. So there's that coming-of-age, journey-through mm. you know transition bit that we talked about in, in the first, first bit.
0: Yeah, it when did do you remember when you first read it?
1: I think I was about 12, 12 13. Uh, I think I got it out of Alvering Library in Wandsworth, a tiny library, not the main library, yeah. sort of tucked away. Uh, and it seemed like a huge book at the time. It was probably the biggest thing I'd ever read at that point. Wow! But yeah, it was. It was. Um, yeah, it must have been about twelve. I think.
0: I think I was probably around that age as well. Um, my mum had a copy of it, which is. Yeah quite interesting because she's she's not really the fantasy reader in our our family it's my dad is is much more of a fantasy reader um and i had the the copy i think it was a peacock book Mm -hmm. but it's got a very kind of pre-raphaelite cover yeah and it did take me a number of readings to work out that ged is not a white medieval yeah. Wizard, um yeah it, it and it's it's one of those um those things that there's a really really poor um really poor dramatization of yeah. it with with a, a white
1: ged um yeah, I, I, mostly white characters i'm not entirely sure that i realized at all when i was 12 uh, and i don't know whether yeah. That's partly because it didn't matter. Yeah. Uh, and I, I guess at that point, maybe you put yourself into the story more, so you become Ged, so Ged could be a small white child without yet a beard, but, you know, that, that sort yeah. of <laughs> in, that, uh, in that space, and it, and it didn't really matter. Yeah, I don't think I, I recognised that probably until much, much later. There's
0: only one phrase in the book, and I think it's when Ged is the, in the dining hall at the Roark Academy, wizarding school and uh then I think it's when um Gwen is describing Vetch and says that he's black so I did pick up mm-hmm. that Vetch was black as as a young reader and then she says unlike the kind of the is it the copper browns
1: yeah copper.
0: Yeah, yeah and so I don't I don't think that it's a very, very small phrase yeah. that you could quite easily miss as a, as a young reader. Because I mean, I was always one for skipping descriptions as well and, <laughs> and going kind of, for the action. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. As I've got older, I've become more and more allergic to plot. The bits where you get into there's an awful lot of plot coming at you, that actually loses my. my attention. Really? So it's on the opposite. And I struggle when I write, I struggle to write plot because I'm not that interested. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's the yeah. the characters and the places. Yeah, that, that
1: sort of thing. I mean, not like, you know, Thomas Hardy spending three pages describing a hill. It's not quite, <laughs> not quite to that extent, but, you know, that that, that sort of thing. Uh, interesting, your your mum had a copy. My mum did read fantasy stuff.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so she was one of the people who, who got me into that sort of world. Uh, the other person, not my granddad, but sort of fulfilled that role partly, a guy called Eric. Uh, he had um, at my nan's flat downstairs one of those sort of, uh, on the, almost like a little storeroom that, you know down in the basement, mm. uh, and I built shelving along the side, and it was just full of fantasy and sci-fi books. Wow! So that's where you know I picked up things like Asimov, um, where he, I wouldn't say his his taste was necessarily great. There was quite a lot of Piers Anthony there, Ooh. there was all all that sort of stuff, and but you read that, and they're all white central characters, typically yes. men. Um, so I don't think I noticed the distinction, but this was a, a quality of, of writing, a quality of thought process and that beyond yeah. um, the sort of, I guess, the sort of Penny Dreadful version of sci-fi that, that he had a lot of copies of.
0: Yeah. My, my dad was into oh, is still into Asimov and uh, also Harry Harrison. Yeah. Uh, yeah so I... I Yeah, I'd read lots of those books. But I I do remember um, realising at some point none of these books have people like me in them. None of the books that I read, the fantasy books that I read that were adult fantasy books, had girls in. And when they were, they were like sexy table lamps, you know, had no plot requirement or characterization <laughs> at all uh so i did i did stop reading fantasy for quite mm. some time until after i finished my undergraduate degree and i discovered a f- second-hand feminist bookshop in in leeds near where i lived i don't know whether the whole bookshop was feminist but th- anyway it had lots and lots and lots of um of Verago and um, Mm. Women's Press, science fiction and fantasy, and that's when I got into people like Marge Piercy, Mm. um, and also Marion Zimmer Bradley, who is also yeah, also uh, an awful awful person,
1: yeah, but an
0: amazing writer,
1: yeah. Yeah. And of course, a lot of the people were just like me, yeah, white white adolescent teenager at the time, yeah. Uh, so yeah, um, I guess I didn't have that, that same formative experience uh, and I I worry sometimes about when I reflect back on that, so you know, one of the roles that I, I do within work, we, we have an entire stream around equality, diversity, inclusion and I feel really poorly placed to, mm. to speak to that or, or to work within that, you know, and I try and help the team to do that because I shouldn't be the person leading on that. Uh, so. When you look back, you think, why didn't I have that reflection? Why didn't... It's because it has to my experience. I was also at an all-boys school.
0: Yes. I didn't
1: even know what girls were, frankly. <laughs> um, so worrying about their, their representation and their portrayal, yeah. as long as you didn't project that onto the people when you did actually meet them, then hopefully that was okay. But that was the sensibility. I, I guess I was slightly blind to that.
0: Yeah, I think that there was, I think there's always been um, a feeling that fantasy and well any kind of speculative fiction is is really for boys it's you know if you're if you're a girl reading it you're a bit weird Mm. which is of course you know ahistorical because there's always been women and girls reading and writing science fiction and fantasy but I think that um it's one of those things that is about, you know, getting boys reading has perennially been a concern mm-hmm. and, uh, and therefore, you know, the overrepresentation representation of boys and men in, um, in genres that they are supposed to like is, uh, <clears throat> is just an ongoing thing and an ongoing problem really. And it is interesting, of course, that Ursula Le Guin's first published, book is a book about a boy
1: yeah so one of the things you flagged up in advance of this was the portrayal of women in the text yeah uh and i'm not entirely sure that she particularly writes women well at least not in this book not in this book st- no. um, so you've got ged's aunt who we mentioned and she's got some magic about her but it's understated it's hidden yeah. it has to be hidden um so i i was involved in a play uh, by carol churchill or Vinegar Tom, mm. about witch trials and all that sort of stuff. And they are forced to be discreet. Yeah. Uh, to, to hide their knowledge and power, to make it seem homespun, uh, rather than something extreme. And it's only when those characters begin to go beyond that, that they get caught and identified and ripped out of the of the community mm. that they're actually serving, being part of. And it feels like that same sort of approach, be quiet, underplay your strength, underplay your power. Yeah. Uh, because that's how you'll be accepted.
0: Yes, yes. I think, yeah, she's kind of a, she's an untaught witch as well, isn't she? Mm. She's like an instinctive witch. Um, and so she does things like she has a charm for calling goats and yeah. so on. Um, she does remind me a little bit of, of um, a much, a, a very unpowerful version of Pratchett's Witches. Yeah very much so. But then we've also got the two the girl who taunts Ged and makes him do the original spell. Mm-hmm. And then there's the lady at the castle with the magic bad magic stone yeah. uh, who also tries to get him to use his powers for evil. So they're kind of It's the temptress. Yeah, role, they're, they're they're they? very much temp, temptress type characters or a hedge witch yeah so, yeah. <laughs> yeah that the, it's sort of i think um the later books in the wizard of Earthsea, the Earthsea cycle have much more interesting um women the tombs of Atuan, for example mm. the protagonist in that uh is the the kind of the goddess who's or well, the 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 human avatar of the goddess who's who's not allowed to to leave the um the temple
1: yeah, that- yeah i mean there's also there's one absolutely invisible woman in this which is get tries to save the baby and fails to yes. save the baby and the way that the the pain and the impact about that is presented is through the father yes and the rebuke comes from the father it's you know you can uh, is it, I I didn't know you were so powerful, Lord, because you know you've managed to fend off the dragons and do all yeah. this stuff. But you couldn't save my baby. But it's the father's pain, and the mother uh, is yeah. is nowhere. Yeah, um, which is a really odd, yeah, um, dynamic. If you like, or that's an odd viewpoint to present uh, for that particular tragedy. I guess.
0: Yes, I think so. You would not. You would normally expect um, the mother to be the one who is. Uh, Whose grief is forefronted, but it's it's not. You're right. Yes, that is an odd, an odd choice that Le Guin made yeah. there. Yeah, um, we talked a little bit about um, the names and mm. the naming of things within the book, and the power of names,
1: didn't we? What yeah, what so, sort of
0: struck you about that? So you
1: have childhood names, you have names on coming of age, you have true names, um, uh, and there's that sense of for me, of the the true name bit or the name on coming of age is about fixing a personality mm. at that point. Uh, until then, you get that sort of it's a bit more fluid. It's mm. it's nothing serious. Uh, and the the parallel um, that that I mentioned to you was around uh, demons in in his dark materials for yes. and stuff. How they change shape, they they you know all that sort of stuff until the point of puberty where they then fix mm. and they become a, a sort of an outward expression of personality. Uh, and I think they have a similar. Um, role there, it's mm-hmm. about becoming formed, becoming shaped, and then there's the question of once you know a true name, that gives you power over it. Yeah. So that that power through knowing that it's part of the the attack on 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 the dragons uh, allows you to summon things to bind them, to control mm-hmm. them, and knowing names is part of the thing that makes. It's part of that wizarding curriculum. Yeah. You know? So it's understanding the true name gives you the power and gives you the access and allows you to then operate and, and mold things. Um, and I guess forget as well. It's about him becoming known and accepted, mm. um, and that's part of that teenage journey thing again. I think, it's yeah, understanding your identity, coming to to be comfortable in in your name and in your form, and then being able to move past that,
0: and recognizing your dark side. Yeah, Re- yeah. recognizing. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's the we have the editing power. <clears throat> um, there's that that kind of power of of. Um, of recognising your weakness or mm. your potential for to do harm as well as your desire to do what's right. That I think is is also part of that. It's not about eliminating yeah. your bad side. It is about recognising it.
1: There, there, there's the, the bit where Vetch, his true name as well, uh, uh, Asterial? Are we mm. saying that? Estereal? I think that so. That sounds, sounds all right to me.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, and that's about trust and friendship as well. So that mm. that ability to stop being that closed-in defensive thing and beginning to open out and trusting mm. the people around you, uh, which is, again, part of that transition. Uh, and I think until that point, Ged wasn't ready to trust. He'd lost his mm. ability to trust. Um, so that that's an interesting use of name as well within yeah. that as a... As a, as a a mechanism by which to establish a relationship and a friendship, and so on.
0: Yeah, and uh, also he's <laughs> he's um, Gade's kind of public name is is sparrowhawk, mm-hmm. and then we've got vetch, which, and vetch is a plant, I think, and then Jasper, a precious mm-hmm. stone or semi precious stone, and that also kind of says a lot about who they are as as people. Because mm. vetch is is kind of it's quite a humble plant. It's not like you know, <coughs> oak tree or something. Yeah. It's like a, a a sort of scrubby weed uh, type of plant. Um, so yeah, that kind of also puts them. You know, we've got the sparrowhawks are, are birds of prey. Vetch being a plant and of the earth, and a, a, a semi-precious stone that also puts them that places those characters in kind of their, um, their, who they are in terms of society. Do you think there is a class narrative in it? Yes, I do. I I think, though, that it's it's because it's not really feudal, that's not the word I mean, but it's pre-industrial, isn't it? Mm. So, I mean, Jasper does sort of mock... for being like a country boy uh, you know not being part of the court courtly wealthy people Um, although he doesn't do that to rich (laughs) I don't think but yeah he sort of needles
1: Mm. needles um, is that an American thing that sort of use of country boy in that way so there's an H.P. Lovecraft song where the first line is I'm just a country boy and it goes on to try and you know but I can do it X, Y, and Z, and yeah. so I'm more than that. Uh, it's, I guess I'm not sure what the English equivalent of that is.
0: Yeah, we don't tend to think about, although, I mean, obviously there's there's social classing in the country, in rural areas, as much as there is anywhere else. But we don't have that kind of now, because of we're such an urban country, that we tend to think of class and poverty in terms of... Urban, um, rather than in terms of the rural. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that is about, you know, people being forced into cities in order to work in the way that hasn't so much been a thing in the US, because... Yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah.
1: That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, of course, the final thing with the, the, the naming is giving the shadow monster a name is what allows them to defeat it yes you know so ultimately that's the, the bit that it all turns on
0: yeah absolutely yeah and I'm I, I'm very interested in the prose style mm. of this because it's very <coughs> unlike a lot of other children's fantasy it's it's very serious for one thing but also the the, the narrative is quite slow isn't it? The plot is slow, yeah. but also the language <clears throat> is slow. It's in very rhythmic, very measured sentences, which reminds me very much of myth or or saga. It reminds me a bit of Lord of the Rings, and that type, without like... the
1: interminable songs. Yes,
0: without without <laughs> the songs and without Tom Bombadil, well,
1: which I always skipped. Yes, that's something I just read straight past <laughs> uh, every time I've ever read <laughs> talking. Um, So, you asked a question around myth or saga, Mm. um, and I tried to get my head around what the difference is. So, in terms of the characterisation, it seems relatable. He doesn't seem, you know, he's not an ancient bloke with a white beard, he's not that sort of Gandalf sort of character. Uh, He can be a bit of an inverted snob in some ways, Uh, a bit like my dad. Um, But he's a teenage boy with all the concerns, the foibles, the character traits and everything else that goes with that. And his concerns don't seem mythic. So they, they they seem personal and and relatable and human. So mm-hmm. I think that's a saga rather than mythic. Mm-hmm. Um, the Scopesboro world is contained. The characters are large, but they're human in their failings and their concerns. So it made me think Beowulf rather yeah. than Tolkien. Yes. You know, if I was trying to you know, give you two comparisons, it's yeah. more on that saga side of the story.
0: Yeah, I I think... I think you're right because it is it's the kind of the 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 story of a small person like uh in terms of who they are in in cl- in terms of their class but also he starts off as a child mm-hmm. and going on to do epic things that mm-hmm. are they're not the world
1: shattering concerns, but they are his world concerns. There, there isn't really a bestriding colossus of religion.
0: No. So it's not
1: like a, you know, in Percy Jackson, you have this, this great son of whoever running around.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but there are the big concerns of the gods over and above that. Yes. You don't have that overarching sense of faith and religion. You have spirituality and various other things, but not yeah. that. So again, it's about people rather than
0: yeah it's it's 80%. her her kind of taoist beliefs, yeah. aren't they mm. and the kind of the balance and when the balance of the world is is out of sync then bad spirits can, mm-hmm. can come in so it's, it's kind of keeping and maintaining balance um rather than god's um yeah, so I think Beowulf is is probably yeah, it's not not sagas like um Viking mm. sagas. Um or with or as you say Percy Jackson but it is yes, it's it's uh I think it you can imagine someone telling this as a story.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I mean that comes back to the prose style, doesn't it? Yeah. So the 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 prose is heightened. But it's not that faux historic thing. No. Because I wouldn't have got past the first page if it was that. Oh, no, no. There's no quo thing. No. Um, And there are inner lives and motivations and backgrounds. Even the minor characters have those. Uh, There's a sense of place. Mm. Uh, It has the obligatory map at the front. But there is a sense of it being rooted in a place that's real. There's wealth and poverty. Yes. So that's not left out. Sometimes the land is hard and cold. Um... There's plants matter, the buildings matter, the dirt matters, there's trade, there's local politics, children die, people are abused, they're addicts, mm-hmm. and it isn't for the cliches and, you know, wise, sexy elves are not welcome here, you know, it's like <laughs> that sort of thing. The people have to be grounded real and have a, a story around them. So, when when you, um, so I used to do drama-y stuff, uh, and there are lots of different approaches to that, so... Uh, a Brecht would be, here's a representation of a thing, yeah. and they are born in the moment, they exist for the moment in yeah. play, and that's it. Mm. And they're there to represent a certain level of thing. Stanislavski would be all internalised monologue and stuff, mm. so not quite that, but they'd have a backstory, they'd have a through-line of action, they'd understand mm. where they came from. And I guess the person who took those two things and welded them together, sort of a Grotowski sort of character, who really liked that psychological motivation stuff, but allied to the physical representation, of playing and it feels like that. It's that combination of inner life mm. with that slightly heightened thing that makes it uh, allows people to stand for more than just themselves. Yes. But it's grounded and rooted in the psychological approach. Ooh, um, that's really interesting. I think that's how I'd say it. Anyway, I yeah. might be wrong. But... Sorry, there, there was that one other thing around. Um, Religion. So, Earthsea is mostly secular. Yes. Um, and that you know, there's not much talk of religion or gods. or think the only theocratic race uh, on the islands are the one that actually carried out the attack on Ged's village at the beginning. Yeah. And they're white yes. and they're Aryan. <laughs> yes. They are white blonde people who believe in God, and they are the only people who did anything despicable in in terms of yeah uh, driven action against another group of people. Yes, and that's a really interesting thing, you know.
0: Yeah, I think that's the other thing that makes me think of of sagas, because of course you know think about Vikings. Mm. You know, although Vikings were not all blonde, uh, or and they were not all white either. No. But that that sort of yeah, that kind of um, invasion and the kind of the idea that the that they have a right to do that. Yeah. Yeah, it's because of
1: so yeah, How does that play out in the later books? Are they because presumably they get more you get more exposure to the other races because I can't I can't remember I'm sorry.
0: <gasps> I don't remember the kargs coming up again. Yeah. Although it is a while since I've read the other books, but yeah, the, the tombs of Atuan the protagonist is um the avatar of a goddess. Mm. So there's, there is religion in that book. But, but it's, again, religion is, is cruel. It's not, um, it's not about the redemptive power of religion. It's mm. about um, <clears throat> how religion is used to control, um, particularly in this case to control this uh, young girl. Um, Ged comes into that quite late, uh, sort of halfway through the book, I think. So he Mm. comes in to rescue her or at least help her escape rather than...
1: Yeah, let's not get on to men having to turn up halfway through and rescue the female characters. Exactly, yeah. So I think pro star muscular, spare measured, that's saga. And I think you probably agree on on that, don't we? Absolutely,
0: yeah. 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 So um, let's talk about my choice, which is Sabriel. Sabriel. Where did I put my... Oh, here it is. Um, And I will read the blurb of it. Who will guard the living when the dead arise? Sabriel is the daughter of the mage Abhorsen. Ever since she was a tiny child, she has lived outside the wall of the old kingdom, far away from the uncontrolled power of free magic and away from the dead who won't stay dead. But now her father is missing and Sabriel is called upon to cross back into that world to find him. Leaving the safety of the school that she has known as home, Sabriel embarks upon a quest fraught with supernatural dangers, with companions she is unsure of, for nothing is as it seems within the boundary of the old kingdom. There she confronts an evil that threatens, her from, threatens much more than her life, and comes face to face with her hidden destiny.
1: Now, that's really interesting. So I've got a different copy. So yeah. the blurb on mine is shorter. you we read that yeah, one as well? Yeah, please do. Uh, I think yours is more detailed. It gives yeah. more of a description of what's coming. Um, to preserve life... I, I nearly did it in an Australian accent, because I know the author's Australian. Yes! That'd be quite funny. Uh, to preserve life, the abortion must enter death. As a child, Sabriel was sent across the wall into Anselstier for safety... Now aged 18, she receives a cryptic and desperate message from her father, the Aborson, the magical protector whose task it is to bind and send back to death those who won't stay dead. Fiercely determined to help her father's per- father perilously trapped in death and save him from the sinister free magic entity that has somehow ensnared him, Sabriel must prepare to enter death herself and find destiny. Enter the Old Kingdom, a world of dark secrets and dangerous magic
0: yeah mine mine is my copy is from uh, 2003 so it's first published in 1995 which really surprised me i thought it was yes. much later than that
1: so so when i was reading i was thinking contemporary and then it occurred to me it was 27 years old yes um, yeah um, interesting that like this one's a 2020 edition yeah uh, so
0: yeah that i i am um, I think it, I find it a very interesting book because this was published in the same year as his dark materials. Although it was published, I mean, in Northern Lights first. Yeah.
1: Uh, oh. and, and the supportive quote on front of my copy is from Philip Pullman. Philip
0: Pullman. Yes, exactly. So uh, that, although, I mean, I don't know when it was first published in the UK, because as you say, Garth Nix is Australian. Um, and I wonder, I would imagine that it, it, became very popular around 2000s uh, early 2000s when mm. um young adult fantasy became such a big uh, a big deal in in uh, the publishing world so <clears throat> what did you what did you think about this um
1: i think i i enjoyed it mm. um I've read a lot of children's fiction recently because my son is nine mm. and he prefers it when I read to him reading. Uh, so we read every night uh, and we read out loud and so mm. on. Um, it feels like something you could read out loud. It feels it has that, that sense of storytelling rather mm. than... Uh, so reading actually the, the Grin out loud would be challenging. Yes. Um, this is a much more modern style and I think that's genuinely typical to... The breadth of choice now is amazing within mm. this sort of age range. So I enjoyed it. I felt like I'd read bits of it before. Uh, I think there are uh, enough tropes that you come back to that you've seen before, that you mm. understand before, and there's a bit of an assembly job around that. But but yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the world that was created. I, I um, empathised with the characters. I connected with the characters. Yeah, I, I enjoyed mm. it as a book. I think it's something I'd go back to, and it's probably worth you know exploring the ones that follow. It's not something I've come across before.
0: Yeah, there's yeah the the other books in the series are quite uh, a very interesting because Sabriel is not a significant character mm. in the rest of the series. Oh, interesting. Yeah, which is which is fascinating. What did you think about the the dead and the undead in the book?
1: So, it, it felt like degrees of death. Mm. You know, so you could be dead and through all the gateways and right at the end and therefore irretrievable um but it exists in that transitional space between life and death with the sense that Mm. that that journey isn't permanent yeah um which was an interesting thing Uh, and actually sabriel and her family sit at that intersection Mm. so and in the same way we'll come on to chartered magic and free magic later they had to take on elements of both of those things in order to to, to manage the role that they've got and so on. Um, but it's that optional flow, that death-life and half-life, half-death thing mm. I think was really interesting. Uh, it, it was, I guess, the challenge of being somewhere on that continuum, it being less set uh, than you might otherwise see.
0: Yeah, I, I found... I think the first time I read this, which is a long time ago um at least 10 years um, i found that quite confused well not confusing i found it intriguing but also quite difficult to envisage so you go through the first gate into the underworld and then mm-hmm. you have to walk along this river which reminded me of the river styx obviously yeah, of course, yeah. and the river <laughs> the river takes you further into the world of the dead and you once yeah once you get to a certain point Mm. you can't come back
1: so So. it's the Dante thing it's um (laughs) it's Orpheus you know it's all of those Mm. journeys which is again I, I think why I said there are bits that just felt really familiar yes um because they are ideas that have been you know played around with before that sense that you, you, you go down through the layers of the onion until it gets to the point, but you can't escape again. Yeah,
0: yeah. And um, I found the the idea of a necromancer is almost like desecrate desecrating bodies, mm-hmm. inhabiting them in order to do evil or putting life back into them, not animation back into them rather yeah, than yeah. life because they're not they're not creatures with free will. You know, once they've risen from the dead, they're being used by uh, someone else. So
1: I guess the, the question that came up to me, so there's always this sense in here that things that uh, use wild magic to to reanimate, to, to move things, things that are trying to make that transition from death back to... Sort of, why are they always destructive? Yeah. Why, why, why is that a thing? You know... It can't be the only motivation to come back from death is to destroy everything else that's alive. I, I don't understand why that's the the only motivation. Yeah. Like, why is the necromancer's only job to reanimate to use and to destroy?
0: Yeah, it's about him trying to come back to fully back to life, mm. and him trying to get power mm. over living things. But yes, the the ultimate end goal is quite straight it, it's not clear why yeah. that or it wasn't clear to me why that was a thing that he was doing um and uh and why why he needs to defeat the Abhorson in order to do that as well is yeah it, it's that I think you kind of along for the ride yeah and then at the end of the book kind of going what was that
1: all about trying to find yeah. the motivations yes that's that was- and you know, Earthsea, we talked about the idea that the characters are driven by internal motivations, desires, all yeah. that sort of stuff. I don't get the sense of inner life in this in quite the same way.
0: No, and and sad, I'm I'm always books where there's a character who has a destiny or mm. who has a duty to do the thing. I kind of want a bit more than that. I I I want to know. A bit more about why why that is the duty.
1: Um, yeah. Otherwise, they're a cipher. Yeah. They're there to fulfil the role of being the evil, nasty person that has to be overcome. Yeah. Or, or a MacGuffin, that running a plot device. Yes. So somebody has to take over the world for somebody to save it. So therefore, you know that's superhero movies a lot of yeah. the time.
0: Yeah. Yes, yeah. it is, and the, and the superheroes a chosen one. Yeah. Yeah. As Sabril is a chosen one. Uh, he has to go and do the thing and and then, but there's no feeling of i mean she does express tension mm-hmm. and unwillingness and, and you know the whole resistance to the call and all of that uh joseph campbell stuff um but it is uh yeah it the the whole the outcome of it mm. is. It's just here's the baddies, here's the goodies. Goodies fight baddies. The end.
1: Which yeah, and, and consequence of that is oh, she appears to be oh no, she's been revived. It's all fine. Yeah, at <laughs> the yeah. very end. That's that's of, Oh okay.
0: Yeah, and and she gets her she gets her handsome prince.
1: Yeah, quite. <laughs> we all need one of
0: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The the you touched on the charter magic versus the free magic. Which is something I found interesting—that magic, magic has to be controlled.
1: Yeah. Otherwise, it's. Yeah, so it's almost like charter magic, good; wild magic, bad. Yeah. Is the basic premise. So charter magic is formal, it's structured, it's cooperative, it's incremental. Whereas free magic is unstructured, dangerous, and destructive. Yeah. Um. So there's the cat, isn't there? Is it? Yes. It maggot. Morg- Morgut, Morgut,
0: yes.
1: Thank you. <laughs> I must have got that wrong. Um, so it's cooperative when it's bound and controlled. Yeah. The minute it is ceases to be bound, it attacks, uh, and she manages to get it back under control. <coughs> uh, and we again, the ultimate villain, uh, villain, and uh, so the necromancer. His power is rooted in free magic, and it has destructive tendencies again. Mm. Um, there, there, there's a bit of me that the the idea that the good magic is the one that's formalized and functional. I mean, I hate to think what Steve would think of that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where's the anarchy where's the yes. where's the where's the liberal uh, approach to this sort of stuff that that seemed a little bit odd, that seems a little bit like what you really want is order and control, yeah, rather than you know freedom connection to to the wild and so on yes uh, and one is inherently good and one is inherently bad that that's an interesting. Uh, thing to present, I guess, in the children's book as much as anything.
0: It's quite
1: Christian. Yeah, it's C.S. lewis is it?
0: It is, yes. It's quite an idea that, um, yeah, that, that kind of free will is a bad thing. Mm. You know, being able to make choices is negative.
1: Yeah, it's
0: yeah. the, uh, which is quite interesting in that so, having Philip Pullman as a, as a blurb, um, because it's quite the opposite of his his end goal in... Uh, oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And
1: in things like um, the good man Jesus and the scoundrel Christ and stuff like that, that <coughs> yes. sense of you know, getting away from those those formalised versions of things and, and that sense of devotion and so on as a mm. as a goal in, its, in itself. Like, that's quite an interesting uh, challenge. Yeah. So in Earthsea, magic is just magic... Uh, and people use it, and if they use it badly, bad things happen. If they use it well, they can create good things around that. Mm. But it's fundamentally the magic isn't the thing that's that's wrong.
0: Yes. You know,
1: it's just a wild power, and it's wild and dangerous. And you learn to control it, or you don't learn to control it, shape it to to what you want to achieve. In this, because of that codification, it's almost like, you know, there are. I know it's, it says essentially it's codified from the wild uh, in the book, but that sense of Goodly bad. um, is, It is, I think, yeah, it feels a little primitive compared to quite how nuanced it is in in Earthsea. I I, I sound like a sort of middle-aged man thinking the old days were better. You know, the stuff written in 1965 is better (laughs) than the stuff written (laughs) in 1995. Uh, But I I don't think it's quite that. I just think it's the themes are less broad. The the world view is less broad. And we talked about, you know, the towers stuff within that and also some of the native... Um, American myths and stuff that she brings into some of the Mm. storytelling. Uh, This feels a little bit more like I've sat in a nice room and I've written this out of my mind and out of my imagination. And there's scope to broaden it. And maybe it does broaden, I don't know. Um, But it it feels like a smaller world as currently written.
0: And it is quite... It doesn't appear to be as reflective Mm. as, as Earthsea. Um, <clears throat> I mean, the, the whole idea of balance in, in Earthsea is so, what's the word? It's so carefully drawn that mm. you make a choice. You, your choices, choice is, having a choice is neither a good thing or a bad thing. Mm. But you need to be aware that when you make that choice, there will be consequences. Yeah. And, and I like that. Whereas, Sabriel is without choice. She doesn't have a choice. Mm. She, um, well, yes, it's, it's the it's Destinarianism. Yeah, yeah. That I, I think
1: is a um, profoundly illiberal. So she doesn't really even have a choice in how she does it. No. So sometimes, you know, Ultimate Destiny, fine. And the interesting thing is how people choose to get there. But she doesn't have that. She has to go to her father's house on the island. Then she has to do this and has to do that. And that's a bit more video game. It's a bit more solve this puzzle to move Mm. to the next level. Mm. Um, Whereas with Ged, you sort of feel like he's finding his way and there is no path. And he's scrabbling through the undergrowth and trying to get to wherever the hell it is uh, and trying to actually understand what the challenge is.
0: Yes, and... Quite unusual as a children's fantasy book. He doesn't have a wise old adult. No, he just leaves him leaves him. Yeah, yeah. He's an, um he has a Dumbledore figure, mm. but Dumbledore, when Dumbledore dies, he's totally on his own. He doesn't mm-hmm. have backup Dumbledore. Yeah, yeah. Or um, backup adults. Hmm. So. The gender roles, I think, are very traditional in um, this book as well.
1: Um, I think they end up being that. So, I, so I, I, I said to you earlier, I don't feel hugely qualified, <laughs> mm. um, but I did look up um, somebody's master's <laughs> thesis where they were talking about gender roles in in this mm. world, uh, and their view was actually the idea that only you know a man can be this type of hero and. <laughs> Woman has to be like this. It feels like in the world, it's accepted that she can be as big a hero as anyone else. So I don't think there's that that sort of sense of you know traditional gender roles in in the world as such. Uh, I think potentially she sort of stays as herself mm. the whole way through. She doesn't ape male behaviour. So I think that bit's interesting, and I, I think you know there's probably a conscious effort there to allow Sabriel to be Sabriel, regardless of the fact that she has off and do this thing. So I, I quite liked that element of it.
0: Yeah, I suppose for me, it's the fact that there is a, a bit of a cliche in that the girl has to be as good as a boy. Yeah. She has to wear male clothing and to yeah. adopt... Um, the appearance
1: so of on, maleness. On the Wikipedia entry, they have, I think, must be the original cover drawing, and crotch, short hair, yeah. smock, everything sort of layered mm. up, everything disguised. You wouldn't noticeably say, from a distance, that's a boy or that's a girl, mm. it could be indeterminate. So that's quite interesting that, yeah, that that, that bit is, is in the illustration, if, if I didn't pick it up in the book necessarily.
0: No, I'm actually, when I imagine her... In my, she has plait. She has one long plait. Okay. I don't know whether that's ever actually mentioned in the book or whether that's just my imagination.
1: Yeah.
0: But um, that kind of element of of um, it's the kind of George from the famous five type. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it is. yeah, Thing
0: that in order to be a you know a hero,
1: hmm.
0: you you have to you have to wear. You have to take on the appearance of maleness. Yeah, interesting. That I found, it was a, very much a kind of a thing around the, you know, f- fantasy fiction.
1: So 95 was Britpop, year, Justine Freshman. Mm. you know, skinny jeans, DMs. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it's, I guess, yeah, you could see that. Oh, that's mm. interesting. I hadn't really thought of it that way. I mean, it'd be great in The Famous Five, wouldn't it, if Anne went to George, it's right. right, I've got it just storms in, wades into the water bushes and saves Julian and Dick. While, the while wearing well. a dress. Yes. Yeah, while wearing her gingham dress and being quite happy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. But, um, I think, um, the other element it, it, that is quite interesting about that is that she goes to a girl's school. Mm. Um, and girls are being taught magic in this girl's school. Um, I mean, she, obviously, she's the most proficient, but there are other, you know, the, the end game actually takes part in her school. Mm. And she goes there because she knows that there are competent women there
1: mm-hmm.
0: who will help save the day. Yeah. Um, which is quite almost the
1: opposite of what I've just been saying. But, you know. It, yeah, so I think there, there are pretensions towards a, a more modern and understanding attitude. yes and I don't know what you know an ex-reservist army officer from the Australian army you know (laughs) born in the 60s um you know what their actual experience is but it feels like there's a a sense of I should be doing this differently and not quite getting there Mm. so I I think I picked up on that and actually I appreciated the fact they were trying to get there yes Uh, and you know there's lots of things you go back and rewrite from a modern perspective if you were looking at it now, and you'd edit it and change it and change those mm. dynamics. Uh, and we talked about, actually, Le Guin not being great at writing female characters, or at least not being great at presenting their perspectives. Mm. Um, so maybe you can see that transition from mid-60s to mid-90s, and if you were to do it in the mid-2020s, then it's yes. a similar gap. Uh, you continue to have to see that progression mm. through.
0: Yeah, and the, the other... The other thing that, I mean, I've been talking about this on podcast before about Tamora Pierce's books Mm. and the way that Tamora Pierce allows her characters to have more than one relationship. So in her books, which were set set in a kind of pseudo feudal, um, what feels like Europe or what feels like um medieval europe her characters particularly her girl characters get to have relationships with more than one person or get to have a crush on more than one person in a lot of her books they actually get to have sex with more than one person yeah but in this book, it's the com- compulsory heterosexuality of like, mm. and compulsory monogamous heterosexuality of like, oh, I'm eighteen and I've met my man and that's it. Yeah. That that um, also felt I felt
1: a bit icky.
0: So I does guess. it go
1: with that sort of? You mentioned that quasi-Christian values. Yeah. Piece. So that with the monogamy with that that sort of sense of this is the right way to do things, girls, which is a bit condescending, <laughs> to yes. say the least. Yeah, okay. That, that, that's interesting. I guess I didn't see that, Had, you know, sitting down and reading it
0: fresh. You know, yeah. mm, it's the same in, in Harry Potter.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. That's well. I mean, Harry,
0: Harry is allowed to have more than one relationship. Mm. Ginny also has more than one relationship, but they've still met in yeah. the love of their lives at school. Yeah. And that's, yes...
1: <laughs> yeah. oh dear and that's a really bad choice for Jimmy as well oh yeah he's such a wet blanket <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: yeah I'd, I'd um
1: I won't let my son hear me say that But
0: uh... <laughs> oh is he really in he's here at the Harry Potter age uh
1: yeah, he did maybe two or three years ago uh, and then we went to Harry Potter world this year so he's sort of just gone back into it a little bit uh, but doesn't read them now. Just listens to the Stephen Fry narrated versions as he goes to sleep. But yeah, uh, it, it's funny. He he has a quite a broad taste. So we're reading at the moment. Um, um, Vish. What's her name? The author. So oh, Vishdi Hardy. Yes. So the stuff around skyships and all that sort yes. of stuff, and there are two strong characters in that who are the twins: a boy and a girl. Um. The, the leader of the expedition is, is a woman called Harriet Culpepper who's entirely grounded and down to earth and just gets on with stuff and is brilliant at lots of things mm-hmm. and has a sort of wise old butler that she sends off to do maps and stuff like oh, that. Oh, awesome. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it, he doesn't seem too bothered about, mm. you know, the characters, male, or female, or whatever. He just identifies with the story and the narrative and the idea of people his age going and doing stuff. Mm. Um, so maybe there's beginning to be a bit of a change in that. He's also really likes the MG Leonard books, Yes. So the adventures on the train stuff with Sam Sedgman. Although that's a boy, yeah. Essentially reworking Agatha Christie. Yes. Um, but yeah, he's he's not too precious about gender, so he doesn't think that a female leaders is, is no reason not. I mean, uh, we've been reading um, Jacob uh, Vigelius. the the False is the most recent one, and the Murderers' Eight. Yes. I mean that's narrated by a female gorilla. Yeah. Uh, quite happy with that as a concept. Yeah. You know, so it d- doesn't get bothered about stuff like this, doesn't feel the need to have that sort of male figure to edit. So maybe mm. attitudes are changing, maybe the way that kids are so. thinking about this
0: stuff I hope changing. so, yeah. Um I I did some research with some former students a couple of years ago. Um at a there was a school where one of my former students was teaching, and they'd gone and chosen all of the the, the other teachers in the year group had chosen all of the books that they were that were going to be read to the class um before she joined the school and they were all books about boys (laughs) and i said i asked her do you think that impacts the girls and she said yes because they they're not reading these books for pleasure whereas the boys are they're actually they've retreated into Jacqueline Wilson Mm. which you know that's fine it's fine you know Jacqueline Wilson's a great author and um very relatable you know for for a lot of girls but you know to only have books about boys that happened to me at secondary school Mm. I didn't read a book about a girl for three
1: years see my, my my daughter who's less of a reader um Pretty much for ages, just reverted back to Goth Girl. Mm. Just always back to you know Chris Reddell's great uh, and everything else, but just kept on going back to there, and there appeared to be nowhere else to go. Mm. Um, and we almost forced her in a bookshop to go and choose something like adult fiction, go and find something that is you know, that you can relate to, that you want to read, that you want to understand, and she's actually dived into it and started reading it. But oh, it's taken ages to get her to get past that sense of I'm done I've I've read things I've been told to read because I've been told to read them. Yeah. I'm not engaging with them. I'll read Kafka occasionally because I like it.
0: And the pictures but, are
1: brilliant. Yeah. yeah. that's it. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's taking that that little bit of time to get her to move on. And I don't know whether a curriculum which was more balanced in terms of allowing her to see mm-hmm. representations of people like her as mm-hmm. well as the voicing representations of people like them. And then both of them actually understanding it doesn't matter. Mm. What the gender of the central character is, but it takes that while to I think make that journey. I think
0: the important thing is balance and having both. Mm. But not to say you can only have books where there are two protagonists; yeah, one yeah. is a boy and one is a girl. Yeah. But if you are going to be reading a book about um, a with a boy as a protagonist, the teacher shouldn't be next thinking with yeah.
1: a girl but as a protagonist or indeed somebody who's neither of those things um, and that's the next big step isn't it trying mm. to find characters who are somewhere in, in between those things or
0: non-binary characters non-binary characters I think would be yeah and there, there are beginning to be more oh right okay for younger children as well as young adults and it is a something that I hope will continue because it's not not just for non-binary young people but also for children who do identify with the gender they were assigned at birth Mm -hmm. but to be actually be able to understand other perspectives and other experiences
1: it's that sense of it shouldn't need to be highlighted and it shouldn't matter yeah that should be the well yeah the character is the character and that's fine we just move on yeah. Uh, and it just becomes part of the patterning of the narrative that they just happen to be the people that they are within that narrative.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Why? We, we did a, a show with the theatre years ago uh, called Road by Jim Cartwright, who wrote Little Voice. Oh, yes. Uh, and yeah, set in an northern town. The language is absolutely full of swearing. Huge amounts of it. Uh, and doing that with some kids in Teddington, mm-hmm. they were hitting every swear word like it really mattered. And we had to say no. It's just part of the pattern and the rhythm of the speech. Yeah. You need to just subsume it into the rhythm of the speech, mm. and then the audience won't even notice. It just becomes part of the way that the dialect works, and that you know yeah. all that sort of stuff works. And it was only then they oh right okay it's just it's just part of that patterning speech. And the same way you can put characters into it uh, where their gender, their sexuality, whatever it happens to be, mm. just becomes a part of the pattern of the narrative, and mm. you know, it doesn't need to be highlighted. It just becomes oh that's normal.
0: Yeah. And that's fine,
1: that's you know, we can all accept that and we'll move on. It's quite a challenging skill to, mm. to do that, I think.
0: Yeah, and, and to to kind of hear the to hear that voice and for it to be um natural and it to feel natural rather than um oh, the book that the books that I'm really enjoying at the moment, L D. Lipinski's uh, the Strange World Travel agency Mm -hmm. one of the protagonists in that book is a trans boy okay and the way that Lipinski works that in is so fascinating because at one point there's a they go somewhere and they have to take trinkets to use as as money Mm -hmm. and so she takes um they take a badge which says birthday girl on them and um, one character says to the other, why well, have you got a badge with birthday girl? And Jonathan, the mm. trans boy, says, oh, my aunt gave it. Mm. Why? She thought I was a girl. Yeah. End. The end. And it, and then it moves on. And it is, it is a, a very delightful moment that's significant, but not overly it's not about transness it's not the story is not about transness the story is about um this travel agency Mm. where you can travel from one world to another and that that's that's the important
1: thing that's really interesting isn't it so coming back to (coughs) one of the first things we discussed was did either of us notice that Mm. ged wasn't a white boy yes and Probably the answer is, on first reading, no, because it didn't really matter.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: So again, it's just he is what he is and we'll carry on. And the fact that other people haven't noticed is bad (laughs) in the adaptations and so on. But it doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter that Vetch is back. It doesn't matter, you know, all those things.
0: But I bet it matters a lot to someone reading those books who was uh, a character with brown skin uh, a person with brown skin absolutely that would be so important to them yeah that and i can imagine that trans kids reading yeah the strange worlds travels agency books will go oh you know and just pick that up and it will just Mm -hmm. be a thing (laughs) like the other protagonist flick is a working class girl Mm -hmm. and that's it's not a key, it's not about her being a working-class girl it's about mm. the fact that here is a character who uh, lives in a housing association housing estate mm. that is kind of viewed with a bit of suspicion by the other people in her village mm-hmm. you know and and that that's just an, an you know but but she still goes and gets to go and have um,
1: adventures so it made me think oh, another book I've read tomorrow which I can't now remember. There are three kids who end up inside a computer game, more or less, um, which is owned by some big corporation. There are a family of mm. uh, two brothers and a sister who created this massive gaming, sort of virtual gaming place, um, one of whom has been sidelined and disappeared off, mm. the other ones are driving in a really corporate and commercial direction, lots of leveraging, you know, m- m- micropayments, all that sort of oh, stuff. Oh, wow. Uh, and the three kids who accidentally end up inside this game... Um, get there through a, a house in the council estate where a door's been left open and they fall through into this into this world and it's a posh girl whose parents are celebrity hairdressers who've made a lot of money and she's been visiting her on the council estate uh, a young boy who is um with a single dad sort of mm. back lacking confidence and so on but you know just a typical young boy and then a girl whose job mostly at school is to be really disruptive and just kick people Oh, and the nice. three of them end up together in this world, having to go through all the sort of gaming stages and yeah. everything else. Um, but yeah, entirely different social dynamics, you know, social backgrounds, uh, economic backgrounds, and so on. And all just working together to get through this stuff uh, and sort of breaking down those barriers of friendships and, mm. and so on until they get chucked back out eventually into the council of state because they've managed to solve the challenge and brought back the sidelined guy who... And sort of under under... Uh, uh, taken out the, the ideas around sort of the corporate honchos who want to drive this in the more commercial oh, direction. Wow. I will find a name for you, Annie, so I get what do. it is.
0: Yeah, um, that sounds right up my street. Yeah. yeah.
1: But yeah, interesting that, you know, the social dynamic, the that mm. it's two girls and a boy, mm. um, but two very different girls and a, and a boy. Uh, and that dynamic, there, there's never any of that sort of romance or pushiness, mm. and it's not the. Pr- a bit like Breakfast Club. It's not the pretty girl who's going to end up with the. Yes. You no, know, it's just they work together as a team and get on with stuff.
0: That's really great. Um, I love that. Well, I think my voice is going to pack up any minute <laughs> now, so I will say, uh, where can people find you online, Scott?
1: Uh, so on Twitter, it's at StumpyDoc77. Um, which I'm sure there are reasons why I can't remember them. <laughs> um, so, yeah, not, not a fascinating Twitter account, but feel free to, to come and, and sure. tap me up on that. Um, on Instagram, I've got a little thing called Ooh. Um which is quite old um, and not my main Instagram account. But it was born of... I used to do a concise crossword when I was commuting, guiding concise <clears> in the morning. <throat> yes. And i take the words from within the concise crossword and turn those into verse.
0: Oh, how lovely. Uh,
1: and turn those into stories. And, you know, adding, adding stuff and yeah. using that as the basis and driving off point. So there are just some interesting little things that people might find.
0: I'll find that and I will put the link in the show notes. Yeah, cool. Thank you for listening to episode 22 of Fantasy Book Swap. You can find us on Twitter at Fantasy Swap, Facebook at Fantasy Book Swap, or email fantasybookswap at gmail.com. You can subscribe at most of your favourite podcast places or download from Podbean. Please do rate and review if you can. It helps to satisfy my vanity. And so far, I'm the only person who has rated and reviewed. I gave myself five stars. You oh, know. I thought
1: you were going to say three. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks to Steve Vapor Trails for production assistance and Jack Seller Johnson for use of his beautiful track, Bliss. Until next time. Bye!